Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Flow Line. Matt, how are you doing today, buddy? I'm doing all right. How are you, Justin? I'm doing awesome. No complaints on my end, enjoying the summer and everything that comes with it. One thing I will say, it's not been chilly here in Houston. Ooh, I see where you're going with this. Uh, but if I wanted to be chillier, I could likely go inside my air-conditioned home. And the wonderful world of drilling fluids also has an interesting home it can go to if it's too hot. If you put a nice little mud chiller on location... That mud that's hot can then go in the chiller and get cooled off. Is that correct? Yes. You're amazing at segues, by the way. Like, (laughs) never stop. Never stop, never stopping. I don't know. It's the cheesiest at best, but uh, I don't know. It just comes to my head randomly. So anyway, that's one of my cool like skills that really doesn't matter. But in the grand scheme of things, when you're talking about drilling fluids, if you're drilling something real deep, real hot, there's sometimes application to where you'd want to cool your fluid. And there's equipment out there that can do so. Matt, let's talk about mud chillers, why they're important, how and why, and hopefully answer some questions. What do you think? I love it. I mean, I got a call the other day and that's what sort of inspired this. And I think we did some stuff on mud coolers, chillers a while ago. And and like, it was more so like, look, I'm generally getting pretty bad reviews for most of the feedback of the people I've talked to. And they are being used more than I thought, but there are some issues. I thought it'd be good to unpack that and explain a little bit of sort of heat transfer, drilling fluids, why the chiller people are going to be like, oh, well, it'd help our model if you did this. And you'd be like, that's great. It makes my job horrible. So yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, again, I think it's worth diving into. And well, let's kick it off and really simplest way to keep or kind of go here is why would you use a mud chiller? And it sounds obvious, but I think there's, again, something to be said on the why. Yeah. Well, so a lot of people immediately think, and this is absolutely a reason to use it, is temperature the flow line. So even if I'm drilling water-based or oil-based mud or what have you, there's safety issues with having mud coming out of the flow line at 200 degrees and scalding people, vapors, all of those things. But much earlier than that trigger scenario is actually tool options. So lots of oil and gas service companies provide they say, hey, we've got a rotary steerable tool and it's good to 350F or whatever. Right. Well, they do, but it's probably very, very expensive and they probably don't have many of them. But their run-of-the-mill tool might be good to 300. And so if you can keep it cool enough that you get to choose from like the typical keep running the normal inventory and keep that tool running and reliable and all that good stuff by just keeping it cool... The economics maybe makes sense. Granted, it's not cheap to have chillers out there because you need generators and it's a big footprint. I think we talked about that. Pretty energy intensive, I would imagine. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, these things can lower, like we've actually seen where they'll have the pit temperatures will be like 60 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, wow, cold. So, and that was when you'd said the coming out of the flow line, you're cooling the fluid off before it goes through your pumps and downhole, right? Is like, where is this tied into? Do you know? Yeah, I mean, so... A lot of times, I mean, you're diverting it, but I'm pretty sure you're still like, and look, I I should ask some of our Northeast guys because they're seeing this more than anybody. Okay. But like, you don't want solids going through a heat exchanger. You don't want cuttings and that sort of thing because they're going to fall out when you 
make something very cold. So it's as close to suction as possible. I think it's probably going to be like right after the sand traps or something. Like you need enough time to pull this and then you want to go into the suction as cold as possible. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So most likely, unless there is a flow line temperature question, then obviously like that's a different conversation because you probably do have to divert early. But 10-4. Yeah. Someone chime in because I think that's a pretty obvious thing I should have looked into. At the end of the day, it's, you know, cooling down the mud. It's going down a whole lot cooler, going through your tools at a much lesser temperature. So talk about the heat transfer piece of this. So you have to think the goal is to keep the tool cold, right? Like that's the economic justification at this point. To save the tool life. To or save to the tool, tool life, tool life. Yeah. yeah. Look, there's temperature sensors inside the tool and the service company might say, look, if it gets above X, it's your tool. Like you bought it. We're not responsible for the failure. So there's a few concepts on how fluid moves, right? So thermal conductivity, basically how well something transfers heat and then convection. So circulation, you know, you hear of like a convection oven. What it does is it circulates the heat. So you're normally as a fan in it. Think about a really thick fluid versus a thin fluid just sitting static. If you heat up a fluid that is thin and static, what's going to happen? It's actually going to heat up Let's say we're in a graduated cylinder. It's going to heat, expand. The hot part's going to rise up, and you're going to create your own little like mini circulation, right? So going to get to the top. If it has a chance to cool, it's rising up. It'll come back down, and you get a little convection current. Oh, yeah. So that's one way, but if you make something thick, it doesn't convect as well, right? It's slower to move around. Radiation doesn't really apply down in a wellbore, but think about the sun scorching you. That's radiation heat. Makes sense. And so from a fluid property perspective, there's two things on the sort of conduction or conductivity concept. So one is specific heat capacity or heat absorbed per unit of mass when the temperature increases by a degree or unit of temperature, right? Mm -hmm. This typically decreases with density. You have more solids in it. Thermal conductivity is, you know, the unit says like watts per meter Celsius, but it's ability to transport heat. So there's more heat transfer at a higher value. This this can actually increase with density with more solids, but you basically run your math. You're going to run your model. Like a lot of the times what we get from customers is do you have the specific heat capacity or the thermal conductivity of your fluid? The answer is no. There are charts and there's like some literature out there, but modeling this stuff, if you look at some of the literature that's out there is all over the place. I would assume the chiller company has a lot of validation because they do some math and whatever temperature it comes out at, hopefully they're not wrong or they'd probably not have the work. But here is the problem. There's not much we can do about those properties, right? If I need a 80-20 oil water ratio for my 14-pound mud, and they say, hey, could you tweak some things? I'm not going to be able to alter those materials very much. Mm -hmm. And so the only thing that these companies are going to come back with is, can you make the mud thicker? Right. And then I need thick mud at the suction pit to cool the tool because it keeps the mud colder for longer while you're pumping it down the ID of the pipe. Hmm. So now I've got thick mud going down. It may thin a little bit as it heats up, you know, in the annulus, but we're going to cool it again. And this just starts creating some messes for us. So mixing with cold mud. Right. If you're used to a hundred degree Fahrenheit suction pit or being able to circulate through a hopper at that temperature, try it at 60 or 70. Canadian guy. How much does it suck to mix at cold temperatures? Yeah. No, it takes a lot longer for everything to yield and actually for everything to realize after you've mixed it. So yeah, mixing with cold mud, especially if you're building something on location and it's freezing, it's very sluggish, a very slow process for sure. Yeah. And it's going to take a couple of extra circulations, Yeah, you know, winter versus summer and that sort of thing. 
And a lot of times, what's the argument? If cold is good, colder is better, right? I just need to keep that tool below a certain temperature. And the safe thing to do is get the mud as cold as possible. Yeah. Not just what's right. Right. What's going to keep me within a threshold, but like, and this is where we get, where it's like, guys, you know, mixing is miserable because the pits are at 60 degrees Fahrenheit. The fluid isn't moving very well, you know, at this cold temperature. My rheology is within spec per, you know, the mud program, because guess what? I'm running that at 150 and the numbers look completely normal. And so the mixing gets frustrating and then we pump it down hole and maybe our tool is fine, but we have all of these other issues at surface. Our fluid may be too thick for even good hole cleaning, right? Because we've had to bump up the rheology in hopes of limiting this convection. So yeah, limiting the heat transfer. So this goes back to, okay, I'm affecting my fluid performance. It's harder to treat. It's really thick, but the tool's okay. And of course, we all know directional gets all of the preferential treatment. (laughs) But the other thing is, you know, hey, what if I use a low ECD mud that isn't as thermally responsive? And that might help a little bit at the pits, right? Because its rheology is going to be closer to what that high temperature rheology is. Yeah. But remember, the stated objective here is to get the fluid thick enough. Basically, I need a specific viscosity right? So even if the thermal response of the fluid isn't the same, I'm looking for a viscosity. So does it really matter what my mud is made of at that point, if it's all got to be the same thickness, where the idea of a low ECD mud is that it doesn't get thick, (laughs) right? Yeah. There's a bit of a trap here where like a low ECD mud might actually help a little bit because you got the big temperature swing, right? but not materially if the goal is to keep the tool cold and I need a certain temperature and I need a certain thickness of the fluid at my suction pit to do it. Yeah. Huh. I mean, again, it can be a little more complex than one would imagine. Again, it's hard for me to speak much on it, having never worked with a mud chiller. Are you finding, speaking with our folks in the Northeast, is there a lot that we have to adapt and overcome? Does it make it more complex, like just operationally for a mud engineer? Yeah, I think one of the things that's really frustrating is, you know, we know solids are a huge, huge problem up there. And so you're trying to keep up with dilution, which means you've got to add product and you're trying to do all these other things. Yeah. And it's taking extra circulating time to get those products to yield and do some of these other things. Anything like a premix pit isn't You've already tied up the backyard with chillers and generators. Yeah. So you're fairly limited in what you're able to do. And then you're trying to stay within program and people are getting upset because you're like on a knife's edge all the time trying to stay on top of all this stuff. And especially like, man, I put all this stuff in there. We just got to sit and watch it. It's like going really slow and all you can do is wait. I think there's just some frustration with the limitations that we face in keeping the mud in check when trying to meet all these other objectives. Right. But even to some degree, it's like, hey, if the surface pits don't have to be at 60 degrees, can we make them 70? And it's like, yes. Okay, then let's do that. But you have to keep in mind, if you ask somebody who's a chiller expert at heat transfer and that sort of thing, they're going to look at the variables that can change. Yeah. And that's going to be the recommendation without thinking about the whole system. Right. Right. The unintended consequences and the, the other effects in the same way that, I mean, we'll look at mud and if you ask me what I want, I'm going to tell you I want it as clean as possible and blah, blah, blah. And they say, look, in the grand scheme of economics and all these other, the limits of our solids control and everything, mm-hmm. that's not a practical limit. Give me something I can use. Right. And so it goes back to communication and trying to understand what everybody needs to get the job done and directional companies get some better tools. <laughs> right. You heard it from Matt. He's not shy. 
when it comes to directional. But what I would say is I would encourage anyone who's a mud engineer out there, and if you haven't used one and the operator is planning on bringing one in, ask the questions. Clearly, we've described some of the challenges that come along with using a mud chiller. There's things that can happen that you need to be aware of. And so, again, ask questions, communicate with your account rep, understand what's happening to the system. Again, it's not rocket science, but understanding when you cool the mud down to a certain temperature, there's some trade-offs there too that you have to be aware of and they're easily manageable unless they're, if you haven't talked to anyone on location about it, it may raise some eyebrows and reduce the amount of headache you can have by simply communicating and understanding (laughs) what's going on. I don't have any other questions, Matt. Again, we kind of dove deep into that. A lot of the stuff probably most don't think about. Most people think, especially if you're on a rig, it's like, oh, let's cool the mud down and Cool. You know what I yeah. mean? But uh, there's clearly more things happening. Anything else that you'd like to relay? No, I mean, I think it goes back to just having the conversation, but everything affects something else. And right. I know we've had a few customers ask, you know, what can we do to fix this and that sort of thing? And it, but I don't want to spend any money. Those sort of conversations, like, well, we've sort of changed how we operate, but if you can tell us your priorities, we'll adapt. Yep, that's exactly right. Well, with that said, if anyone has any thoughts or would like to add to the conversation, please reach out. You can hit us up on LinkedIn or you can send us an email at the Flowline Podcast at AESFluids.com. Be sure to leave a review if you could. Share this with a coworker or a friend in the drilling space. Please follow us on LinkedIn, YouTube, and we'll be sure to continue to post good, valuable content for the drilling fluids community. With that said, take care, everyone. Until next time. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.